Good to be in God's house. It's going to be a great week. Uh, I hope you've got good plans. I do. Uh, it's going to be a busy week, but I'm, I'm, Lord willing, I'm going to see a lot of people I love and don't see often enough. So uh, looking forward to that. Speaking of people you love, so there are cards in the pew racks in front of you. We are on a journey here at First Baptist over the next, uh, for now it's six or seven years left. Uh, we're, we're seeking to participate with God, work alongside God as he brings peace to chaos in our community. And the way we do that is by what we call transforming relationships. So our job as a church is to equip you to invest in other people, people outside the congregation mostly, uh, people that are struggling, some who don't know Jesus and they need somebody who knows Jesus to come be a part of their life and, and earn the credibility it takes to tell them about the gospel. Uh, some who are just struggling in other ways with, with health, with grief, with uh, mental struggles, with all kinds of things that, that you can participate in. Here, here's an idea, somebody you know who's a caregiver. They, they have a family member that they are full-time giving care to, and they need somebody to be there for them. Uh, so at any rate, those cards are for you to let us know the person or people that you're investing in so we can be in prayer for those situations. And so we can know what kind of impact our church is making. So if you would take one or, or more of those cards and just give us whatever information you feel comfortable, you don't have to give us your name, you don't even have to give us their name if you don't feel comfortable with that. But there's a basket out there in the atrium on the right as you walk out the doors. Just drop that card in there and we would appreciate it very much. Thank you for what you're doing. Now, speaking of those kinds of relationships, I'm going to talk today about a kind of relationship you may never have considered. And it starts in, in James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. James 5, this is the Lord's brother. He writes, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. James is talking about people we know who know Christ, but have walked away from him. Maybe they've dropped out of church, or maybe they're still in church, but they're living a life of utter hypocrisy because once they leave here, they're, they're pursuing other things that are against his will for their lives. Maybe there's just one area of their life where they're just, they've totally rebelled against God's will. And the thing about that, here's what I've learned as a pastor, because I've been doing this over half my adult life or half my life now, is it's a miserable thing to be without Christ in this world. It's even more miserable to know Jesus and to turn your back on him. People I know who are Christians, who are living in rebellion against God, are the unhappiest people I know because they know what they've had. They know the joy and they know the peace and they know the purpose and the identity they had. And now all of that is gone because they are pursuing their own path. And if you can come into that person's life and love them back to the Father, you're bringing them from death to life. And you're covering a multitude of sins. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about some real-life opportunities, some real-life scenarios, that some of which will resonate with you, that will give you ideas of this person or that person that you might want to put on that card in your pew rack and say, okay, I never thought about it, but this is a person I need to be pursuing. This is a person I need to be investing in. But before I do that, I want to give you a story of the from the Bible about exactly that kind of relationship. So some of you know this story. It's, uh, the, the part we're going to read is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. But one fine spring day, 
David, the the king of Israel, the slayer of Goliath, the unifier of God's people, the man after God's own heart, the author of the Psalms, was asleep in the afternoon when all of his men were out fighting on his behalf. And he woke up, he took a stroll on the roof of his palace, and from that vantage point, he happened to see a very attractive woman in her bath. And I think most of you know where that story goes from here. I won't give you the gritty details, but I will say that that woman's name was Bathsheba, and throughout history, there have been a lot of people, including a lot of my fellow preachers, sad to say, who have blamed Bathsheba for this entire incident, as if she was a seductress and and poor David was just some poor dumb jock who couldn't help himself, right? And that was all her fault. And yet when you read the Scriptures, it's quite the opposite. The truth is, we don't know what was in Bathsheba's heart. I've I've talked to Christians who say, well, she had to know he could see her in that bathtub. We don't know. Oh, she knew what she was doing. We have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us. We'll have to wait to get to heaven where we'll meet Bathsheba, and we can ask her that question if you are so bold. I will say this. I want to be there when that happens, by the way. Um, (laughs) Read the Scriptures. Look who is held responsible. In every instance... In every nuance, it's David. David was the one who found out who she was. Oh, that's the wife of Uriah. Uriah, you know, he's one of your 30 mighty men. He's one of your best soldiers. He's the one who sent for her. He's the one who took her. He's the one who, when he found out she was pregnant, arranged for her husband to be killed in battle so that he wouldn't have his hands look dirty and and he could take her as his wife. And for all anyone else knew, that pregnancy was thoroughly legitimate. After all, not all pregnancies last 40 weeks and everything would look like it was perfectly fine. I mean, he's the king of Israel. Who's going to question him? This is the perfect murder, except for one thing. God exists and God sees and God knows and no one ever really gets away with anything. And God sends Nathan the prophet to David. And that's where we pick up the story of 2 Samuel 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. I want you to think about the genius of the prophet Nathan in this story, because he knows, first of all, that when a man, or a woman for that matter, is willing to commit adultery, lying, and murder. They're already in a place of such hard-heartedness. They've rationalized their sin to such an extent they don't even see it as a sin anymore. 
And so, besides the fact that he's also the king, and he can have your head chopped off at, at the snap of a finger, Nathan knows that it would be unproductive, unfruitful to just go up to him and say, oh king, you are a sinner, and you need to repent. So instead, he tells this story. He knows that David is a shepherd. That's his trade. He has held many little lambs in his arms. He can picture this. He can feel that lamb in the, in the lap of this poor man who has no other possession on earth. And I want you to think about it. Bathsheba is the lamb. Uriah, her husband, is the poor man. David is the rich man. He's the oppressor. He's the predator. David is suddenly struck through the heart he suddenly sees his sin through someone else's eyes, which is exactly what needs to happen to us when we've turned our back on God. And he repents. He said, please forgive me. And Nathan says, God has forgiven your sin. You will not die. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, you deserve to die, Nathan, but God is not going to take your life. That's forgiveness. And it was such amazing forgiveness that David ends up writing Psalm 51. Read Psalm 51 sometime. This is a perfect picture of repentance. You've probably seen or heard politicians or, or celebrities or other famous people who have to give an apology because they're caught in some scandal, right? Even preachers. And their apologies are always non-apologies. They're always, well, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry that you were offended by what I said. They put it on us. They don't take responsibility. They do whatever, they read whatever statement their lawyer has prepared for them, but there's no real repentance. There's no real ownership. Psalm 51 shows you how to repent for real. In verse four, David writes, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. There's no rationalization there. There's no minimizing the sin. David takes full responsibility and says, I've not only destroyed a family and killed a man and betrayed the trust of my nation, I have sinned against almighty God himself. And so whatever he does to me, I've deserved but then in verse 11, he writes, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David is saying what every sinner in this room, and that's all of us, need to admit, and that is when we turn our backs on God and we act in total rebellion against Him, we need to be restored. This is not something we can do casually. We can't just say, oh, well, I guess that one's on me. My bad. We have to literally repent, and we need the grace of God to restore us, whatever your sinful pattern might be. It doesn't have to be uh, adultery, lying, and murder. It can be anything. But if you have set in your mind to willfully rebel against God, you have entered a place of living death and you need the grace of God to restore you. And that's why confession, and that's why repentance is so very important. And God granted it. He granted David the, the renewal of his salvation, the renewal of his spirit, and he actually blessed David and Bathsheba with four sons. One of them you may have heard of, his name was Solomon. He became the king after David. But another was named Nathan. Think about that. David and Bathsheba named a son after the guy who was proud enough, not proud enough, 
brave enough, gutsy enough to confront him about his sin. That says something. That says that when we, when we speak truth, when we speak truth to people that they don't want to hear, as, as the Proverbs say, uh, precious are the wounds of a friend, that's real love. That is love in action. Now, a question that I want you to wrestle with for the rest of today and however long it takes you to come up with an answer is, who is there in your life right now that God wants you to be a David, a, a Nathan to? Who, who does God want you to be a Nathan to today to speak the truth in love to them? The rest of this sermon is not going to be comfortable to hear. I'll just warn you. But I will say this. This is not about calling out every sin you see. If you went around trying to be everyone's moral policeman and call out every sin you saw, you would be a very busy person and you would be probably the most hated person on earth. And I wouldn't feel sorry for you because that's not what we're called to do. We are called to stand for righteousness. That does not mean that we are God's moral policemen. That's what the Holy Spirit is for. And when God's people decides to be, decide to be God's moral policemen, that's instead of the messengers of the gospel, that's when people get turned away from the faith. So no, you don't walk around saying, aha, I've caught you. But when you see someone in a destructive pattern of life, when you see someone headed in a road that is taking them in the opposite direction from what you know is God's will according to Scripture, when you see someone doing things that you know are going to result in desper desperation, despair, uh, anger, pain, horror, you have a, a responsibility to speak up. And I'll, I'll give you the most obvious example right off the top. It's what I call the three A's. Addiction, abuse, adultery. We've all seen those things happen in the world. We've all, some of you have experienced it yourself. You've either been the victim of or the perpetrator of one of these. And so you know how painful these things are and the damage they do to lives, to families, to communities. And so when you see a friend who is drinking too much, when you see a friend who is addicted to some substance or some harmful pattern or habit, when you see a person who is abusing someone else or is being abused, when you see someone who is throwing a, a marriage away because they're chasing after somebody that's not their spouse. We have to speak up, even though that's not going to make us popular with that person in the short term. We have to say something in love. We have to speak the truth. Now, here's a less obvious example. The rest of my examples, and by the way, these are all hypothetical. They're not based on anyone. No, no actual sinners were harmed in the construction of this sermon, okay? So uh, I've got one story that's not hypothetical, and you'll know it because I'll name names, all right? I'll get to that in a moment. Now you, now you just woke up, right? I'm going to name names. All right, so you've got that friend who loves to gossip. And when, by gossip, I mean who loves to talk about people who aren't in the room. And sometimes it's, it's being funny. Sometimes it's, I can't stand this person and I just need to vent. Sometimes it's because they just like having the attention of everyone on them because they're saying something that everyone finds a little bit juicy. And we've all been there and we've all done it. And I'll confess that I've, I've been the world's worst at times in the past. And the Lord has convicted me and hopefully I've changed. But there's something, there's something so addictive about having everyone's attention on you, especially when you tell a story about someone you don't really like. And everyone laughs or everyone identifies, everybody agrees with you. And when you are the one who is listening, just understand you have a responsibility. You might say, well, I'm not contributing. I'm not, I'm not agreeing. I'm just standing there. And yet, and yet you have a responsibility to bring that person from death to life. To say something like, 
yeah, that's, that's a really ugly thing you're saying about, about, about Judy there. And I happen to like her. I don't think she would appreciate you talking about her that way. Or, you know, I, I hadn't heard that piece of information about Bob before you said it just now. That's really serious stuff. Maybe we ought to call him right now and see if it's true. This, this friend of yours is not going to appreciate you saying these things. And yet it is exactly the right thing to say, especially if it brings them, it, it, they, are, they are now able to see their sin through your eyes. And you've also defended person, someone, there, someone there who wasn't there to speak for themselves. Can we all agree that's the righteous thing to do? I'll give you another example. Someone is missing from church. Someone you used to see sitting right down the pew from you or someone you used to talk to in the atrium or someone who used to be every Sunday in your life group and suddenly you, you, have, you realize it's been weeks, maybe months since I've seen this person. And in that situation, so many times we say, well, it's not really my business. Maybe they've got a kid who made a select ball team and they've been on a a, a, a tour or tournament, or maybe they've got a parent who's sick and they're taking care of them, or maybe they themselves have some health issues. It's none of my business. I'm not going to nag. Here, let me just speak to you as a pastor with a broken heart and understand that I love this church. And for every one bad thing I can say about this church, I could say a thousand good things, but here's something I have to say about us. I can't count the number of people I know who are no longer part of this church because of this exact thing. Because something happened in their life, and for whatever reason, they were missing, and no one reached out to them. And that includes me. I didn't call them either. But I'm just one person. And, and you sat next to them. You were in life group with them. You saw them in the atrium, and then suddenly you didn't. Why didn't you call? Why didn't you text? Why didn't you drop by? See, the irony is, if you go back 150 years and you look, you look at the letters your great-great-grandparents used to write to their friends, it sounds like Shakespeare, right? Have you ever read those letters? I mean, these are people who didn't even go past the eighth grade, and they're like, I beseech thee to write, you know, and you're like, what's... They're pouring out their hearts. They're, they're doing their best to convey love to someone who they can't see in person. You and I, today, we can pull a device out of our phone and we can look another person in the face at the push of a button. And in spite of the fact that we're, it's so easy for us to be connected, there's never been a generation that is so isolated and lonely as we are today. So you're not nagging when you call or text somebody and say, haven't seen you in a while. Is everything okay? Are you doing all right? Is there anything I can do for you? How can I pray for you? You might be bringing that person from death to life. That person, it may, there may be a perfectly innocent explanation. They'd still love to hear from you, but it could be that they've dropped out for whatever reason, and they're on a spiral headed downward spiritually that could end up in all kinds of destructive things, and you can step in the gap and stop that from happening just with a simple contact that will take you less than a minute in most cases. Reach out. Here's another example. You've got uh, that friend who is at odds with some important person in their life, maybe a, a parent or a grandparent, maybe a child, maybe a, a sibling, somebody that they just they, they're not talking to anymore. There's tension. If he's going to be at Thanksgiving this week, I'm not going to be. If I'm going to be, then he's not going to be. And you don't want to get involved in those situations. You feel like you're, you're nosing in, and yet you've you got to confront that 
statement of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And doesn't a peacemaker go to your friend and say, walk me through this. What what has gone wrong between you and your brother, your sister, your aunt, your, your child? And help them talk out solutions. Wouldn't that be what a peacemaker does? Wouldn't a peacemaker even gently challenge and say, well, have you actually ever said you're sorry for those things that you said that hurt their feelings all those years ago? Wouldn't it be worth it to call and say, hey, I'm going to Thanksgiving, but... I'd love it if you were there too. Would that hurt anything? It may not work. In many cases, it doesn't. But what if it does? Look what you've done. Look what you've contributed to the reconciliation of a beautiful relationship that's been broken just purely by sin. Now, here's my real-life example. Uh, some years ago, uh, Carrie and I, we, I was the pastor of a church in another town, and, and there was a young family in our church, a young wife and and husband, and they had a three-year-old girl, their firstborn, and this three-year-old girl was a a holy terror, like most three-year-olds tend to be from time to time, and and I can remember, we both could remember, it hadn't been that long before, that we were new parents, and our child frequently publicly acted like a feral cat, except much louder, and you just have this sense of helplessness. How do I handle this and what do I do? And there's an embarrassment. And the way this particular family covered their embarrassment is they made jokes about it. Like the dad, I remember one time, it was on a Wednesday night and we were having dinner in the fellowship hall and the, and the kid was throwing a fit and he said, hey everybody, uh, anybody want a little girl? I can sell her to you cheap. And everyone laughed. And, and, but they made those kinds of comments all the time. And we knew that he loved his daughter. We knew she loved her little girl, but my wife was burdened for this child and thought, you know, as she gets older and starts to understand these jokes, it could create real bitterness toward her parents. And I, I, at first I said, don't say anything to them. I mean, come on, they're going to get upset. They're going to get mad at me. Um, By the way, just as an aside, Here's one of the hardest things about being a pastor's wife, besides the fact that you have to be married to the preacher. Um, You have to watch everything you say. When you're the pastor's wife, okay, y'all, regular church members, you can say whatever you want. What am I going to do? But if she, anytime she has something in mind to say, she has to do this mental math of, oh, what's this going to mean for my husband? And that's hard. So in your quiet moments, when you're wondering what sin to confess to the Lord, you might ask yourself, I wonder what Carrie Berger might say to me if her husband wasn't the pastor. I'm just saying. So back to the story. Carrie said, I, I, ha- I can't sleep. I have to talk to this mom. And I'm, I'm like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll bear whatever consequences. And she goes and she speaks to this young mother and she shares her heart and she shares how we struggled with the same thing and here's some of the things we did and here's just what I'm worried about. Here's what I'm burdened for. And I know you love your daughter and I, I just want you... And, and this young mother, to her credit, took it well and and responded well. And in fact, we saw a change in the way that that mom and dad acted, at least publicly around their daughter. And the the real happy ending is a few years ago, this daughter, who's now a grown woman, reached out to me uh, on Facebook, because Carrie's not really on Facebook. She reached out to me and I said, how are your mom and dad? It turns out she has a great relationship with them, loves them to this day. I'm not saying that's just because Carrie had that conversation. I'm saying that certainly helped. It changed things. 
You take a risk when you have these conversations. That's my point. And yet, that's what love does. Love risks. Love does what's hard when it's necessary. Two more examples. There are those people in your life that maybe you can't pick some scandalous outward sin. They're very moral. They're very religious. But they're also very proud of being very moral and very religious. They're very self-righteous. They're very judgmental. They're very hateful. They're the kind of people that you admire but you don't really like. The kind of people that non-Christians, they're the, they're the things they cite as why I'm not a Christian. And you and I find those people intimidating, usually. We avoid them as much as we can. Look at what Jesus did with those people in the Gospels. And you might be saying, well, yeah, the scribes and the Pharisees, he hated them. No, he actually didn't hate them. They hated him. See, when you get to Matthew 23, when Jesus goes on the long rant where he says, don't be like the scribes and Pharisees, we act like that was his entire relationship with them when actually that was two days, two or three days before he died. And he's saying, just for the record, before I'm gone from the scene, those guys don't represent what God wants. But up until then, he's doing everything you can. You read the Gospels through these eyes. He's doing everything he can to win them back to the Father. He goes over to their houses for dinner. He spends time with them. He appeals to them. Just one example. The parable of the prodigal son, probably the most famous story Jesus ever told, which makes it the most famous story ever told. Do you know who the audience of that story was? you know who he was telling that story to? I always thought it was a bunch of, you know, a bunch of uh, scandalous sinners. It was spoken to the scribes and Pharisees. Go look it up. It's Luke 15. Scribes and Pharisees came to him and said, hey, what are you doing eating with, with uh, tax collectors and sinners? And he says, let me tell you a story. And when you read it that way, you understand that the main character of the story isn't the father and it isn't the, the prodigal son who runs away and then comes home. It's the older brother. That's the main character. The story is about him. Because in the story, the older brother, who's always followed the rules, by the way, is angry that the father receives back the brother who has wasted his life and is now coming home on his knees. And so the, the, the father throws this big party because his son has come home. Older brother is angry and he refuses to come in. And remember the way the story ends? I bet most of you don't. The story ends on a cliffhanger. The story ends with the father pleading with the older brother, please come back. Your brother who was dead is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. That's Jesus pleading with the scribes and Pharisees. I know you don't like these people. I know, I know you've always thought you're better than them. I know you're confused at the fact that here I am uh, loving them and, and welcoming them and treating them like they matter to God. But don't you understand that God isn't just righteous? He's also a God of grace and love. Don't you understand that that's something to celebrate? Please come in. And little known fact, when you get to the book of Acts, there's a section that tells us that many Pharisees became believers after the resurrection. And we might know the name of one of those. His name was Saul of Tarsus. So in a way it worked. Reach out to these people. Love these people. Win them back as best you can. One more example, and that is people who have walked away from church, people who have turned their backs entirely on God and have deconstructed, as they say today, de-churched. 
Some of them have their re- I mean, they all have their reasons. Some of them, they were hurt by a church in the past, maybe even this church. Some of them saw hypocrisy in God's people. Some of them uh, experienced some personal pain and wondered why God didn't answer their prayers. Some of them, it's just as simple as they've decided what lifestyle they want and they know the Bible says they can't live that way. But you'll never know until you talk to them. You'll never know until you listen. And yes, you should pray that God would give you words to say and God will give you words to say that will penetrate their hearts. But what matters, what will win them back is probably not your words, it's your prayers and your love. So don't give up on these people because God hasn't. There's an old saying that I don't like much because I don't think it's entirely true. It goes like this. The church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. I don't like that because it's not entirely true. The truth is every army on earth shoots its own wounded. I mean, today, when you go home, if you're a football person and you watch a guy miss a kick at the the end of the game or watch a receiver miss two or three passes, what does that team do to that person? If your company has a salesman who's not making his quota, what happens to his employment? If your favorite political party has a politician that can't seem to win elections, what do they do with him? See, every army on earth, every, that's the way the world works. If you don't put out, you get left behind. The thing about the church is it's supposed to be different here. The church is supposed to be the place where when you stumble, we rally to you and we put you back on your feet and we dust you off and we help you walk the right path again. That's what we're called to do. Now, you've probably heard stories of the opposite. You've probably heard stories of churches casting out people because of their actions. Casting out people because uh, we don't like what they've done. And maybe you've even experienced that yourself, but you didn't experience it from Jesus. I can guarantee you that. Because here's our story. Here's what you and I all have in common, all of us in this room who are believers in Christ. There was a time when we were the ones who weren't just fallen and failed. We were literally opposed to Jesus. We were his enemies. And in that time, he died for us. It's as if we were enemy soldiers on a battlefield, wounded, and he ran into the battlefield, carried us to safety at the cost of his own life. That's the cross. That's the story of of salvation. That's the gospel. In the words of his brother James that we read at the beginning of this message, Jesus saved us from death and covered over all of our sins with his own blood. So think about that the next time you see a fellow believer headed in the wrong direction. Don't tell yourself it's not your business. Don't tell yourself, I don't need that kind of drama in my life. Think about the fact that when you were lost, someone came after you. So how can you now not go after them?